Farming has always been a risky business. Interacting with nature is fraught with potential dangers leading to crop failure. Some of them, like deer or even spider mites, you can see and do your best to prevent. Some threats, though, are nearly undetectable and will decimate your plant before you even know it is there. Today, we're going to talk about some of those unseen threats. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. This month, we will randomly choose four newsletter subscribers to receive three packs of seeds from Pride of the Lion Seeds in Mendocino County. Check out their Instagram profile at Pride of the Lion Seeds and request their new catalog of over 150 photo period and autoflower seed varieties. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is Cora McGee. Cora McGee is a PhD candidate in plant science at the University of Connecticut. Her research focuses on the association between microbial communities and pathogens causing root rot. She holds a degree in horticulture and a master's in plant science. During the first set, we will talk about fusarium wilt, its causes, and prevention. During the second set, we'll do the same thing with pythium. And in set three, we'll cover proper tool cleaning, a bit on root rock in rock wool systems, and the importance of microscopes. Welcome to the show, Cora. Happy to be here. Fantastic. So let's jump right into it. You know, one of the things that caught me off guard right away when doing my advanced research on this show about fusarium and pythium molds is that pythium actually isn't a mold, which caught me off guard because we certainly talk about it as one. Um, But I understand there's some taxonomic discussion about whether it really is a mold. And it seems that they've even created an entirely new kingdom for it, which for me seems to be like a pretty big deal. Um, So would you hit on that a bit before we go into Pythium's characteristics um, that matter to us as cultivators? Yes, of course. Uh, it's a really good question. It's a, you know, it's brought up a lot because we tend to group pythium with all the rest of the fungal diseases because it, it's very similar in the way that it grows and and by, and other types of um, infection. But the biggest difference is that you know true fungi have chitin in their cell wall, and and pythium, a different oomycetes, is what we categorize pythium in. Uh, they don't, so they lack chitin in their cell wall, and that's that's a big difference. Uh, when we're talking about characteristics of fungi. Uh, and it's funny because, yeah, pythium's not a mold, but we tend to categorize it as a water mold because it thrives in water, it loves water. Uh, so it's kind of an informal way that even plant pathologists talk about pythium. But when you talk about classification, no, it's it's not a true fungi. It's an oomycete. And you, you could even think of it as a, um, it's a protist. Uh, but, you know, if you grow it in culture, it, it's still got hyphae and it grows very similar. If you see it, uh, uh, the mold anywhere on a plant, you know, you, it, it really does look like a fungus. But, you know, being um, being technical when we talk about it, uh, it's not. So they're in their own little world and category of the oomycetes uh, and not the true fungi. So 
do, yeah. do you do we find that that happens like to have them recategorize taxonomically is kind of common my only experience with it is um you know i i kept aquariums for years and occasionally we'd get one of these uh you know small schooling fish or something where they would change the name of it from what we knew to a new one because they're like oh yeah we we moved we moved where it was on the species chart and i always thought that was such a i don't know kind of cool and odd thing to have happen um i know that you study a lot of these i don't know i guess i'll call them microorganisms um are you finding that that these things like jump around on the chart regularly yes yeah and it's funny like most plant pathologists you know it's kind of annoying because we'll call something uh their scientific name or latin name for years and years and you know someone who studies even a pathogen uh you know it's got the same genus and species and when it changes on you then you know the the correct way is to call it by its proper name even though like you know you know it is the name that you've been calling it for years and i have a really good example of a pythium that i worked a lot with and then all of a sudden 2014 the uh the genus of the pythium changed so it's not even pythium anymore we call it globosporangium <laughs> which is like a much longer name uh, for Pythium irregulare is the is the species that I'm talking about. So instead of being Pythium irregulare, it's Globosporangium irregulare. Uh, so that's a really good example. And I attribute it um, more commonly, the more we learn about these organisms, uh, I think sequencing and molecular technologies have really helped uh, correctly classify them and keep classifying them. And it's not just microorganisms. Uh, uh, tree species and um and you know even woody ornamentals go through this as well uh and there's a whole board it's it's actually a whole formal process of people getting together and trying to figure out uh how to reclassify and and it can turn into a headache but you know you just go with the flow yeah right <laughs> and then you accept its new name and 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 keep going with it uh but I can imagine yeah. that it, um, it it does uh, separate the old school scientists from the new folks coming up because some people <laughs> yeah. know the old name and some people knew the new name. But let's 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 uh, cycle around and focus on cannabis now. So, um, is there just one species of Pythium that is of concern to cannabis cultivators, or or are there a variety of them? Because I, I mean, I know there's a lot of different Pythium varieties, but I don't know if all of them are concerned to we cannabis lovers yeah that's a good question so of course you know as cannabis is becoming a way more popular crop and we're still learning a lot about what types of pythiums that we're finding within infected plants and infected substrates uh, or soil that people are growing the cannabis in and my personal experience i'll start with i've personally isolated uh pythium myriotylum from uh, infected cannabis plants and uh, have also extract well, I was just talking about Pythium uh, irregulare, but it's really Globus varangium irregulare. But, you know, you, they look very similar and you can still think of it as a Pythium even though the genus name has changed. So I've identified um, both of those at a commercial marijuana facility uh, within infected, infected plants. However, uh, going into the, the literature, there's a lot of reports, um, not just from one state, uh, but multiple states in which they're finding Pythium affinidermatum uh, within cannabis production, uh, whether it's marijuana or hemp, we're, we're seeing that, you know, it doesn't really matter the difference, uh, you know, cannabis is cannabis. Uh, so, so yeah, those are the three main pythiums that I have 
that I've been seeing, not just in the literature, but in my own experience. And out of all three of them, Pythia myriotylum seems to be the most virulent, um, which means basically causing uh, the most damage and the most symptoms within the plants. Uh, and, and, and it's not just mature plants that you can see these pythiums in. Uh, pythium, you have to actually look for throughout the whole production stage because uh, pythium is also known for attacking really young seedlings as well. They're very susceptible. Uh, that classic kind of wilt damping off symptom is, is pretty classic of pythium. So something to look out for, uh, not just within mature plants and in the soil of those plants, but also um, within the seedling production as well. So does um, <clears throat> does pythium live in all soil or let me here let me ask this question differently. You know, very often cannabis um, cultivators are are thinking about keeping their plants sterile from these pathogens. Which you know, since since we mostly talk about living soil on this show, of course, keeping a living soil pot somehow sterile is is kind of an oxymoron. But but. People kind of think of like, I don't want any pythium in my garden, so I'm going to guard against having any pythium. And I suspect that pythium is probably in every single pot, but the question is, is we want to keep our pot in balance so that it doesn't fall out of balance and, and create a living environment that lets the pythium outcompete like i don't know whoever it competes against and so so what what is that what is that like is it is it pretty sure that pythium's already present everywhere and it's just about keeping it in check right so so that's a question that i've actually asked a lot it's like where is it coming from it seems to be everywhere and and so now um you know myself and other uh, extension agents and I'm sure pathologists have kind of gotten to the point where now we tell growers just imagine that pythium's always there uh, it's pretty ubiquitous it, it can be found in lots of different uh, growing operations lots of different hosts and that doesn't exclude cannabis so I would say yeah just um, just keep in mind that it may always be there no matter you know you should keep you know doing your practices keeping everything clean and 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 trying to keep um, everything sanitized. However, I always say it really comes down to not creating conducive conditions for the pythium to be very happy. And like you said, really outcompete all those other microorganisms that may be antagonistic to the pythium that's in that living soil. Um, Which brings so, us to the crux of all of this, right? Let's go right, <laughs> let's go right to it. What are the living conditions that create this opportunity of imbalance and, and gives pythium a chance to take over our pot? So the biggest one that I really want to bring up, and we kind of hinted on it earlier, is uh, pythium loves water. <laughs> it's, it, it, it can infect really easily in water, and so waterlogged soil conditions really creates this awesome environment for pythium to take off. Uh, so so anytime that you're not um, managing your soil mo moisture properly and, and your soil moisture is, is too saturated and you're really waterlogging your soils, because that not only creates, you know, less oxygen getting to the roots and a really, you know, kind of stressed out, unhappy root zone within the plant. It's also making this pythium very happy because it's got infecting propagals called zoospores uh, that are very efficient in swimming in solution and they'll swim right into your roots. Um, and another thing that makes pythium really happy is high nitrogen levels and excess fertilizer because uh, that can really break your... Um, 
root cells open and then the pythium is very efficient at, at swimming and going towards uh, your roots and affecting in that way. So you, so you really want to create a healthy and happy root zone to stop that pythium from coming in in the first place. So again, it's like always act like the pythium is going to be there in the pot with you, but don't, don't allow those conditions that make pythium thrive within that pot. Let's, let's talk about the mechanics of that really specifically because cannabis cultivators are an ingenious lot and they are always looking for their own solutions. So let's talk about this mechanic. So the way that you said it was that you don't want to have too much moisture in the pot because the pythium will swim towards the roots and infect that way. Like there's got to be more to it, right? Because like the, 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 I imagine the root actually has got a membrane of some sort on the outside. How does the water create an opportunity for the pythium to air quotes swim into the roots? Well, it's not just the water. It's the water um, that that too much water is having an effect on the roots. So roots also need oxygen to survive just as we do. So if you're not allowing adequate oxygen to get to the roots and always having too much water bound around those roots, then you're already kind of creating an effect where you're rotting out your roots. And then that that's where Pythium can really take the opportunity uh, to, to come into the roots. And so you're saying like the, the, the root is wet and so the root starts to like literally rot and so there are like fissures in the roots well yeah if, if that if that root cell burst open it'll it'll start leaking out we call it leaky roots they'll start leaking out root exudates and that and, and um zoospores can can sense that and swim via in the root chemiotaxis via chemiotaxis wow. can get into the root um so so that's why i also mentioned not just waterlogged conditions that are not allowing adequate oxygen within the root zone but also excess fertilizer can also like high salt concentration within your growing operation can also really affect those roots, stress them out, break them open, kind of like cause some uh, root necrosis, root damage, especially at the tip level. And then again, you're, you're just allowing this entry point uh, for the pythium to get through really easily. That's so right. I, I've never heard an yeah. explanation for what, what I'm thinking we all refer to is root burn. Then people say, oh, you don't, use, <laughs> don't, want, don't want to use too many ferts because you'll burn your roots. I bet you this is what we're all referring to when we use that common parlance. Yeah, yeah, and I guess we call it leaky roots because, like, they're leaking out those root exudates that's making, you know, all these plant pathogens are waking up and being like, oh, yeah, we have an entryway now. And, and, and then once they get into that tissue, then, you know, they, they really have something to feed on and, and they start multiplying. Your populations just get, get um, higher. Yeah. They, you know, they have now they have a host. So, so they can survive efficiently. Uh, dormant and not need a host uh, within soils and things like that but they can really take off and increase in population when they have that host and those those tasty roots to feed on I guess if you want to think about it like that so so really it's not that pythium it's not that pythium has come in and um, attacked your plant as much it is it is that the cultivator has overwatered its plant or doesn't have enough drainage for long enough that the roots are rotting and that the smell of the exudates, if you will, like wakes <laughs> up the pythium and it, it, it goes into the root via those, those cracks in the root structure. And so the, the pythium is just going to sit there and be 
Um, dormant. Thank you, dormant. I was going to say hibernation. I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> pretty much. It's a good way to put it. Yes. Like hanging out. Yeah, it's just it's hanging out. Strike. Right. So that's interesting. So we really can't like blame Pythium, really. <laughs> like it's like we're, we're creating a, this attractive nuisance, essentially. Yeah, yeah. But overwatering and overfertilizing, like the they really, really do not help, and they really help, and they don't help the grower, but they help invite the pythium uh, to infect. So those are the two huge things with the root rots um, that you know pathologists really can't stress enough because uh, you can stay as clean as you want, but you know those root zone conditions, you want white plump roots. Uh, so so anytime those are comp. You, you are kind of, you know, alluring all these, uh, especially Pythium uh, diseases to, to come into the roots, yeah. So, um, you know, for both Pythium and Fusarium, the main way that most cultivators recognize that there's a problem is because they get what you know, people will call either fusarium wilt or pythium wilt, where the plant droops in a very severe way that looks unlike a regular wilt when they get thirsty, right? Um, th this somehow looks more dramatic. <laughs> and, 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 um, and, you know, once you've seen it a couple of times, it's really, it, you don't really confuse them anymore. But, um, but is there, are there other ways that, um, we can find signs to discern if we have pythium like before it takes the plant are there are there other signs that we can look for yes and and that's a that's a good way to we always say you know scout early so so i'll go back to my previous statement um you want to really start with inspecting all the healthy material coming and all the material and making sure it's healthy when it comes into the facility or, or coming into your yard, what have you, like wherever you're growing your plants, make sure those are healthy and that you're not starting off with um, like any rotted plants, things like that. And if we're talking about like a, you know, more mature potted plant and what are signs that you can look for, uh, it'll, it starts in the roots. So, so once you get that wilt and that dramatic droop, like the, there really isn't going back or saving that plant which which i hate to say but it's all about prevention so once you get to that level of you're getting the will then then it, then it's a goner but it, it, since it starts in the roots and it you'll you'll start getting kind of brown uh, necrotic roots that's the first step and something that's telltale about pythium that's not so much for fusarium is that with pythium it's called a rat tail so you can like if you see that your roots are looking kind of necrotic or browning as a good way to put just kind of like dead not healthy white roots you can take some of that root tissue pull it apart and if the outer cortex or just like um the outer membrane however you want to say it of that root comes off so easily and exposes that internal um that intervascular tissue within the root uh, the inner cortex, uh, we call that rat tail. That's pretty telltale pythium. If it just easily sloughs off right when you like break that root apart, uh, that's a that's a good tell that you have pythium bruri. And hopefully you can catch that before you start getting the wilt symptoms. Uh, and then another characteristic sign is reduced growth. So this is a big one because, uh, you know, say you've got six plants on a table and you're seeing, you know, they, you, you want to look for uniformity. And, uh, and if there's some plants that are just looking like really smaller, you're like, oh, I potted these like around the same time. Uh, things are looking, you know, more reduced growth. They should be probably bigger with how much you've been fertilizing or watering. You're like, man, it's weird. I just feel like they're growing really slow. Uh, that's another telltale sign that you've got a root rot issue because uh, it's just that plant 
plant, its roots are compromised, so it's just not growing as vigorously as it should be if it had white, healthy roots. Uh, and then another symptom that you can see within both, you know, Fusarium and Pythium is yellowing of leaves. So you can see, uh, we like to call it chlorosis, chlorotic leaves, yellowing is the same. Uh, and, and that's a big symptom as well. So so before you even get to the wilt stage, because the wilt's like the final, you know, the, the, the roots have been totally compromised and that, that pathogen just totally took over and, and it, it's done. Those are three big ones to really look for. And it, it starts with the roots. So so you really just want to be checking, making sure like you have white, healthy roots. It's very exciting when you can like, you know, kind of pull the pot back and see like, yeah, I have white roots. Like, and it's, it's kind of root bound too. Like they're, you know, they're grow there's a lot of them, but when you're not seeing many roots within your root ball and when you're seeing that the roots are turning brown, that's a good sign that you should maybe bring that plant out of production uh, so that your other plants don't get infected as well and that you're not spreading um, that infection. You know, that's a, you know, I, I have heard that people pull small plants. I mean, I, I even pull small plants just because they don't look they are like they're going to yield enough to justify their space in the greenhouse. But I had never really thought about it as the runts might just not be, um, you know, seeds with phenos that are not as um, rambunctious, but they actually could be sick. I mean, that, you know, ma making a decision to get rid of a runt based on yield is, um, you know, is a lot more of a passive decision than potentially getting rid of a runt because it's a very good sign of, you know, root rot. Um, that, kind of, that seems like it's way more pressing than, you know, than just yield. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, if you really don't want to get rid of that runt, like say like, oh, well, I could get something out of it. Uh, again, just check those roots because like that, that'll tell you really quick is my plant happy and healthy and are the roots thriving? Because if they're not, then it's a really good sign. You know, yeah, I have root rot. Like that's why this plant's not doing well. It's because not enough water and nutrients are getting uptaken through these necrotic, you know, these browning roots. Uh, it's, com you know, it's compromised and it's, it, the plant's really struggling <laughs> to, to, to get to high yield so right on let's talk a little bit about the best practices of that so as i'm picturing you know looking at my roots first thing you know a lot of uh a lot of folks grow in um you know huge cloth pots you know have hundreds of gallons and clearly you're not gonna like flip that over in your palm and and knock out the plant into your hand so you can look at the roots so if you're if you're growing in in huge pots that probably um isn't for this solution and also if you're growing in um you know generally fabric pots they don't really slide out as elegantly as they do when you're using a black plastic landscape pot so it's probably not for 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 you know fabric pot people either but if you're growing in uh, a plastic pot that is of a size that you can realistically turn the plant over and you know give it one shake so it dislodges from the pots and you look at it that would seem to be your best case if, if maybe the only case where checking for that works so let's say that i am using you know a five or ten gallon and it's dried enough that it's not going to fall apart and i turn it over and i've i've got it cradled in my hand so i don't break the the um the stem and i give it a one quick shake and it slides out and now i'm looking at the roots what are we looking for 
So what you want to see is really white, uh, full, plump roots. So you don't really want to see much brown, uh, kind of dead-looking roots. And you want to see a lot of them too. So so depending on how old the plant, you know, what we what we consider a healthy plug or um, you know a healthy potted plant is you want to see. Um, you know, it root bound almost like not not too much where it's unhealthy, but you really want to see those white roots like all the way around. And what I've seen uh, too many times with Pythium root rot is you'll look at that root ball and you barely see any roots around that uh, soil media or, you know, whatever media you're growing on. It just looks like, you know, and the roots you do see are brown. Uh, you'll see like maybe some white roots, but they're attached. Um, you know a part of them is brown so so it you should be looking for uh white healthy roots and, and then you can feel better about like oh yeah like I don't, I don't think there's much of a problem and and um you know i, I i'm always for for testing <laughs> so that's also like a good time you know it's it's especially depending on how many plants you have and you don't want to compromise your operation or all your grow you know it doesn't hurt to also get a soil test and, um, and since you're not sending tissue to these labs and it's pretty inexpensive, uh, you can tell really quick, like, yeah, but I'm getting yellowing of my leaves. Like, isn't that a symptom of Pythium? Uh, or my plants aren't growing that much. You can at least um, kind of on your checklist or what have you get away with, oh, I have a nutrient deficiency. Because at least if you send the soil, you can see, oh, I have adequate nutrients. Like oh, my pH is in a good range. So, so um so say, you know, you're getting the yellowing and it's, it's deficiency of nutrients, uh, you know, at least you'll know that uh, because I'm sure it can be confusing if you have yellowing plants and your roots are looking really healthy and you're like, oh, but what's going on? Like, so, so I feel like that's one good, that's, that's one tool that you can put in your toolbox for sure, uh, just to eliminate it. Cause I don't expect all your growers to just become plant pathologist overnight. And I think that's a little bit of the stressful part, uh, into where I think research and extension, uh, and services need to really match the industry and the home growers and the popularity of cannabis, uh, because we really want to help and and a lot of these things um you know i can name out symptoms but a lot of them can span across you know pythium fusarium symptoms look very similar and i wouldn't you know i, I wouldn't expect growers to know the difference between them uh just just looking at you know even cuttings or, or mature plants like you can definitely get a idea of like oh is this is this unhealthy but i, I wonder if it's disease or i wonder if it's environmental or nutrient and i feel like that's the first question you should be asking yourself truly not what disease is it but is it a disease and then the second question once you've figured out oh it must like i think or you know this is from a pathogen these symptoms then okay what pathogen now so i think there is uh i do want to stress like the steps of diagnosis in general um when working with any crop because uh, even if you presented me with two plants, one had fusarium wilt, one had pythium wilt, uh, I wouldn't feel confident within my diagnosis or assessment unless, you know, I was putting those roots under a microscope slide and like looking at the structures, like, you know, you can even go as far as molecularly identifying it, which, you know, usually isn't, isn't needed for certain cases uh, and things like that. But again, like, I don't think growers should have to bear that responsibility. I, I think there should be um, resources that can help with that. 
Yeah, well, as as we get into better relationship with the federal government and are able to take advantage of, you know, more... Um, you know, resources within the agricultural industry, like extension agents and stuff, will will have a lot more help. I mean, for years, cannabis cultivators have been been pretty much on our own. Um, so let's say that we we do have a plant and it's already pythium wilting, and you've already clearly established that once once the plant has gone full wilt, that uh, that it's done. And so. Um, so what do we do to dispose of this plant? Because I'm not thinking I want to take that plant and, and just throw, throw the substrate back into my compost pile uh, and, and take the risk of increasing the overall amount of pythium in my soil supply. So like, I probably want to take it away from my whole property, right? Yes. Yeah. Bag it, tag it, double bag it, get it out of there. Don't compost it. Make sure you get all the debris. I think that's why it's really important. Like not just, you know, take it out, but really like bag it, contain it. Like, you know, you don't want that soil particle going anywhere. You don't, you don't want any of those infected leaves falling anywhere. You just, just to be safe, just bag the whole plant and, uh, and yeah, get it, get it out of your growing operation and do not compost it, uh, is, is the best, the best situation. Uh, if you get a pythium outbreak or, you know, a plant that's fully wilted, you don't want it uh, to be around the rest of your plants. Man, the thing that irks me and you'd be surprised that you see it is, you know, someone will have a wilted plant. And I, it doesn't even matter if it was from pythium, but if you have like an infected plant or a plant that's wilted or just any debris that you're not growing with or just like some plant that's sitting in the corner that you're going to deal with later, like deal with it as soon as you can, because the more that, you know, dead tissue just sitting or dead debris sitting near your healthy plants uh there's lots of plant pathogens that like to feed on uh dead tissue decaying organic tissue and you know we're going to talk about fusarium in a little bit fusarium's you know uh, very efficient saprophyte it, it would love to stick around and hang out on all those uh, wilted leaves kind of sitting in the corner and botrytis is another one you know we start getting to more uh, foliar pathogens that you could really avoid just by bagging that plant up getting it out like deal with it right when it happens uh and and you know your past self will thank a uh, future self so yeah my uh my growing mentor hector um he would love hearing you say this and f he'd feel so justified because uh you know i was brought into this scene and he was meticulous with any time we were removing um leaves from the plant um to put them in a bag that was then removed from the property and you know i always found that a little tedious and time consuming and then when i got into the regenerative growing um scene i felt like a bit vindicated because so many um, regenerative growers will remove leaves off the plant and then uh, put them on top of the container uh, down at the soil near the base of the stem so that um, the, that leaf can degrade and you know the idea is that the nutrition goes back into the soil as well as making home for you know little you know, small organisms that live on the top of the soil and things like that. But what, but what you're explaining to me is that this is absolutely increasing risk of pathogens without a question. Yes. And, and, you know, I, I've got to applaud like the person who wants to take, you know, be sustainable and not want to waste like tissue, but there is a place for that tissue and it's in a compost. <laughs> it's in a compost that's going to be like treated and away from your healthy plants. Cause yeah, right. When you take any type of debris and put it, you know, especially like in a nice moist place, like on top of the, um, uh, 
soil where your healthy plants growing you know i, I could imagine i could honestly already see the botrytis or like diseases <laughs> like coming for that tissue like within you know a couple days like it it really doesn't take long for another issue to occur uh for, for when you have any plant debris, yeah, any type of organic matter, even soil that's hit your floor, like, you, you know, that's where cleaning really comes in as a good, proper preventative. Um, so not just getting rid of the plant debris, getting rid of soil debris and anything that can just kind of hang out around your healthy plants. Because, uh, um, you know, not only like insects, but lots of, uh, lots of pathogens will hang out there, stay dormant until, you know, Till they're given an opportunity. Yeah, 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 exactly. Until they, you know, that little piece ends up on your shoe and then that shoe goes trudging in your side garden. And, you know, like, so it's it's just better to sweep, get all that stuff out of there. And uh, it's just, yeah. It's the best, best uh, procedure. Right on. So we're going to take a short break and be right back. When we come back, we're going to do this same thing again, but with Fusarium. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is plant pathologist Cora McGee. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband. And their award-winning Blueberry Muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Land Race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. Humboldt Seed Company. Let them know Shango sent you. For years, organic cultivators have been looking for a replacement for using peat moss. Peat moss has long been the go-to soil amendment for water retention and container growing, but organic growers know that peat moss is an unsustainable resource, and the mining of peat bogs destroys habitat and releases sequestered carbon. But peat moss works so well that many have continued to use it. But now there's finally a revolutionary replacement for peat moss that shares the same benefits while also being sustainable. Pit moss sounds and acts like peat moss, but instead of being mined from fragile ecosystems, it actually is made from upcycled organic paper and tree bark. Pit moss is excellent at retaining water in your substrate and creating air pockets and tiny living environments for microbes. 
pit moss instantly increases aeration, nutrient absorption, and water conservation too. Carefully and locally sourced, pit moss is the result of decades-long research into the use of recycled paper fibers. Pit moss has the fluffy nature of peat moss and handles exactly the same. And like peat moss, pit moss is inert, so it won't change your pH. Available in a range of preparations, including a nutrient-enhanced blend, a coco-coir blend, and also as an organic soil conditioner with no added nutrients. Pit moss is also available as an animal bedding. So go to pitmoss.com now to learn more. That's P-I-T-T-M-O-S-S dot com. Growing healthier, more sustainable plants. Pitmoss. Businesses everywhere are striving to reach people through advertising. We all know, though, that trying to reach a cannabis audience with a quality message is pretty difficult. That's why many people choose to advertise on the Shaping Fire podcast. Advertising on this show allows us time to talk about your product, service, or brand in a way that really lets people know what sets your company apart from others. Bold people who own companies know that getting into relationship with their customers is essential, and that is what we offer. We will explain your service or product, what sets it apart as desirable, and help our audience get in contact with you. It's pretty simple, really. Advertising does not have to be all whiz-bang, smoke, and mirrors. Nowadays, I find that people prefer just to be spoken to calmly, accurately, and with good intentions. If you want to make your own commercial spot well, you can do that too. During these pandemic days, conventions and cannabis events are pretty poorly attended, but podcast listening is skyrocketing. With a commercial on Shaping Fire, you'll reach your customers in the privacy of their headphones right now and will continue to reach new listeners as they explore the Shaping Fire back catalog of episodes again and again for years. A spot on Shaping Fire costs less than a printed postcard per person, and the Shaping Fire audience is full of smart cannabis enthusiasts, cultivators, and entrepreneurs who are always curious to learn. Do yourself a solid and contact us today for rates on podcast and Instagram advertising. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is plant pathologist Cora McGee. So we are essentially going to do second set like we did with first set, where first set we were focusing on uh, pythium, the non-mold root mold, uh, but now we're going to talk about an actual mold, which is called fusarium. And honestly, I would say that fusarium is probably more commonly known in cannabis because, you know, pretty much anything that wilts we say oh it's got fusarium wilt and i bet you that a good share of the plants that actually die from pythium when the story gets retold later that night over beers that pythium is actually being sold as fusarium because you know uh fusarium wilt looks an awful lot if not exactly like pythium wilt so um you know what? Like, let's start the same way. Is are there multiple fusarium species that cannabis cultivators run into problems with, or is it really only just one? There's some main ones uh, that researchers and pathologists have been identifying down to the species level within um, more commercial greenhouses, but you know it stays true to to gardeners as well. So, fusarium oxysporum 
that is a really common fusarium that a lot of people have have started seeing in cannabis, including myself. Uh, so Fusarium ox oxysporum is a Fusarium wilt. Um, it causes Fusarium wilt and it's, it's pretty common. It's a pretty common Fusarium uh, across all host species. Uh, so I guess we weren't too surprised when, you know, started realizing cannabis was susceptible to this, this pathogen. And um, another Fusarium that causes more of a root rot is uh, Fusarium solani. And I haven't personally seen this in cannabis, but Dr. Punja, uh, he's a pathologist in Canada who's been surveying. I feel like he hits a, he comes out with a new paper every like six months uh, with all different pathogens that he finds in commercial marijuana facilities as well from, you know, soil to hydroponics, you name it. And, and it seems that that Fusarium oxysporum and Fusarium solani are, are the two biggest that he finds in abundance uh, within within these facilities, and that's mostly the roots, the root rots, the crown rots, and the wilts. Um, and and it's funny, I you know Fusarium oxysporum can found can be found in mature plants uh, causing the wilt, but I've also encountered it within uh, cutting production, so at the younger tissue stage, and. Um, and I just wanted to say real quick, uh, Fusarium doesn't just affect uh, roots or cause wilt. Uh, Fusarium can also uh, be a fungus that attacks the buds of the cannabis plants as well. So just like you were saying, you know, it sounds like Fusarium's getting a lot of the credit uh, where Pythium may be involved. Uh, but I think the same goes for the, the fusarium that that a few researchers, not just myself, but I saw Cornell has seen this as well within cannabis buds is fusarium is detected on, on that as well. So I'm sure when growers see mold growing on the bud, they they immediately are like, oh, botrytis. Yeah, because um, because that's a common one. And I've seen botrytis on the buds as well. But I just I just wanted to let your listeners know, you know, uh, again, just going back to where testing is really important, that could also be caused by fusarium. Uh, and there are some uh, some differences between them. But again, you know, you'd uh, it would really help if you had diagnostic tools or if you had a pathologist that that could help identify it. Um, I'm not expecting, um, you know, home growers or even some commercial growers to really tell the difference uh, with that mold because it looks it looks similar. It looks very similar. Does fusarium on the buds look like botrytis or will it present differently? So it's hard to say because it depends who's looking at it, right? Uh, so if, if I were to look at it um, from afar, I probably couldn't tell. But once you start getting more up close, like botrytis is, you know, it's called gray mold because the, the canidia uh, and the spores, the actual what you see, uh, the mold fuzzy part on your plants, it has kind of like a grayish color to it mm -hmm. for botrytis. And then also the way botrytis grows, it grows in like uh, chains. So so that's something that I would know and that I would try to look for when looking at it. But when I've seen fusarium grow on bud, it has more of a white color. It has more of like a white thread-like growth uh, versus like um, spores and chains, which botrytis, uh, which botrytis kind of that, that is characteristic to botrytis. Uh, so, so I would say yes. To me, I, I saw a difference. But to tell you the truth, when I first saw fusarium on the bud, I'm not gonna lie. I was like, oh, well, maybe it's botrytis because I, I really haven't seen many reports of fusarium on fusarium on on the bud. And you know, that'd be kind of crazy because um, you do want to really look out for that because fusarium head blight on corn 
uh, is, you know, some species are known for producing mycotoxins and those can be, you know, harmful toxins, uh, if humans ingest them. And, and so, and so it's, it, again, it's not something you should just kind of, uh, forget about you you really want to get a good diagnose diagnostic uh, take on on what you're looking at uh within that bud but anyway going back to the story when i was looking at that bud uh right when i put it under the microscope though i mean it it you know the structures are very different between botrytis and fusarium so i immediately was like whoa i have a fusarium and then i went further and i not only uh, looked at the fusarium under the microscope that I saw in the cannabis bud, I put it in culture. So when I say I put it in culture, there's um, a nutrient media that you can put in Petri dishes and, you know, that's how we can grow out different pathogens to really see um, morphological characteristics and culture and that can help identify. So fusariums in culture are well known for creating vibrant, colorful pigments, right? So when you put botrytis in culture, you're going to see those kind of like gray, uh, gray, spores in the petri dish and then they'll also go on if it sits longer in the culture it'll create a sclerotinia which are their resting structures that can survive and you know substrates and things like that they almost look like uh, tiny mustard seeds almost like black uh little uh, rocks. <laughs> that, that's what their structures look like. Uh, but fusarium can create these gorgeous, well, I say gorgeous, but very like vibrant colors um, and pigments in culture. So fusarium oxysporum, as we were saying, which is common in cannabis, that create that can create in culture a very uh, pretty kind of purple lavender color in culture. And the fusarium that I picked up on the bud had this uh, very striking kind of orangish red color in culture. Uh, and then I actually had that fusarium sequenced. You could tell I was like very curious <laughs> so I was like okay I'm also gonna um I'm gonna sequence it so I can you know not just morphologically identify it uh, but I also want to molecularly identify it again, like, you know, fusarium structures can look very similar depending on species. So I was like, Ooh, I wonder like what species this is. And it was more of a curiosity thing. And when we had it sequenced, it turned out to be fusarium sporotrichoides. And, uh, and that's also been known as a fusarium head blight on like wheat and, and, uh, more cereal crops. So, so it's a long story to say, uh, yeah, fusarium's not just seen within the roots, it can be within the bud. And that's just one example of a personal story of how I've diagnosed uh, to species level one on the bud. And I, I think just as more pathologists get their hands uh, on these different pathogens and different production sites, like maybe more reports will come out to see how common that is, because that's something I can't really speak to is, was that a rare occurrence? It was in our research facility at UConn uh, or you know is that is that a common uh, common pathogen we see I, I read something Cornell has seen similar things on outdoor hemp production it's it and it actually they went as far as they saw that some fusariums they saw on cannabis uh, buds did produce mycotoxins and I thought that was very interesting um, and and something that the cannabis industry should uh, should keep it its eyes and ears out for for sure I'm feeling so schooled and humbled at the moment because um, I here on Vashon Island where I live, <clears throat> uh, you know, I help a lot of patients with their grows um, because I'm kind of the local expert, and um, we have been experiencing what I now think is fusarium um, all over the island the last two years. And for me, as I saw it, I'm like, wow, this botrytis is really presenting differently this year. 
here, right? Which now in retrospect, that sounds so, so novice, but you know, uh, your, your explanation of it was so good. You know, normally we would see Botrytis, which is, you know, the, the, the gray spores and they, they kind of look like, you know, little gray clouds inside mm-hmm, of yes. the, the, the flower. But then about two years ago, we started getting these, you know, these white strands that you, um, describe that to me kind of looked like like white cotton strands and and in in my head i'm like oh it's like a um a a spider mite got in here and did all of these white you know webbing instead of the kind of webbing they do on the crown right and i'm like they're they're all these like straight webbings of white and cottoniness inside the flower which is clearly a mold and clearly not something i want to smoke but also wasn't something that i had seen a lot of before um last year which is interesting because the weather here for the last two years has been significantly wetter and colder earlier and um it's interesting that you would say that all of these, what are essentially beautiful colors, come out when you put it in the Petri dish, because the main way that we are identifying what I now will call fusarium in the buds, because, you know, they're on the inside of the flower. So the flower will look great more normally until you crack it open and you're like, oh, God, what's all this cottony stuff that's all white? But the telltale sign, which, you know, if you know your garden well, you can see from across the greenhouse, is that... Um, um, there will often be a part of the bud that has gone incredibly colorfully necrotic. There will be like one leaf that will go like bright maroon or purple or pink or orange or something. And you're like, oh, look at this fantastic, gorgeous bud. <laughs> but there's that one, there's that one sugar leaf on there that has gone, you know, royal purple or something. And, and then when you crack that, bud open suddenly you see all of these cottony white strands um a have you had that experience with the sugar leaf turning colors on the bud and second what causes the change in the color um what we say you know in the garden is like oh you know all the anthocyanins are showing right which would suggest that the chlorophyll has left the leaf and like i don't know that could all be bro science but i'm hoping you understand my example enough that you can just kind of generally speak to it Yes. So in my experience, I did not see any um, different coloration around where I had saw the fusarium bud rot on the on the bud. And I I think I caught it pretty early, too, because I didn't see a lot of dead tissue around uh, the signs of the pathogen on the bud. Um, So there's one. And then two. uh, So I haven't had a lot of experience with the bud rot uh, and. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure what produces the increase in pigments within the tissue. And it's interesting because at UConn, um, since about 2018, 2019, we have multiple researchers like looking at these types of interactions and seeing like how do different pathogens that are infecting these plants like affecting pigmentation? How is it affecting genes? Uh, how is it affecting trichomes? So those are all. Um, questions that I can't answer, but hopefully are starting to get answered uh, as research has been opened up uh, for this crop. Because that's the thing, it was kind of this crop we couldn't touch for years. So that answer may, the answer to that question may be answered within other crops, but 
but I'm not sure if it's been answered within cannabis and it would be a very interesting research question because uh, that could really be applicable to growers. You know, that could be maybe an early sign. I've been seeing like a different pigment. Pigmentation. Uh, is that something that fusarium's causing? <laughs> Unfortunately, it seems of, to be a late sign because <laughs> oh, any time so we're talking about after the necrosis. Yeah, okay, a, okay. A, a, yeah um, we see that by the, by the time we see that color, it is time to uh, either remove the whole plant or oh. or just the crown. And actually, you used this term crown rot earlier in the show, which I had not heard before. And that sounds like the perfect phrase for what we've experienced these last two years, where we've got this beautiful plant with this killer cola, and the cola sh uh, gets fusarium, and then it shows one sugar leaf that changes color, and we crack it open, and it's it's got advanced uh, cottoning you know these cotton white cotton strands on the inside and um and you know calling it crown rot it's you know that's a pretty cool name for it you know oh, well i would call that bud rot so when oh. i mentioned crown rot earlier crown has to do with the crown by the root zone oh i thought so, you meant the top of the plant so yes no so so i was so i think um and it's totally easily um misunderstood because when you talk about crown rot uh, it's more at the base of the plant uh, so that the crown of the root oh. uh, which fusariums can cause so that there are fusarium crown rots out there uh, such as like um Fusarium solani, I th I'm pretty sure, has been reported as one. However, uh, when we're talking about the bud rot, uh, um, we wouldn't, pathologists wouldn't call it uh, crown. We'd call it bud, like a bud rot, mm -hmm. uh, because it's on the bud of that, um, you know, part of the plant. Yeah, so just to clarify that for, for No, that's good. That's well. good clarification. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. So, um, all right. So circling back around to like the main thrust questions, uh, fusarium does, is it in the soil all the time, just like pythium is, and it is also just looking for an opportunity to take over? Yes. Well, unfortunately, yeah, it's a soil borne pathogen. So, so you want to imagine, uh, it can be around, especially, you know, you're growing in these living soils and there's lots of nice microbes in there and, and you you don't want to create conditions that are conducive for the fusarium to to increase in population and then cause infection and get into your roots and then get into your stems because you know fusariums can also cause uh, vascular issues vascular um, stem rots and wilts within your plants as well so yes uh, you know everything I said earlier about uh, not to do within your pots to avoid pythium is very similar uh, with fusarium, such as you don't want to overwater, you don't want to damage those roots, you don't want to have you want to have optimum nitrogen for your plants because you know cannabis are heavy, heavy um, feeders. Yes, they're heavy feeders. Thank you, uh, but you don't want to have uh, too much nitrogen. You don't want to have too much compost on your plants because uh, it, it can really uh, again, like we talked about, create those those leaky roots and and create a really opportunistic uh, time for that fusarium to infect. Uh, and, and the symptoms are really similar as well. 
However, fusarium, since I said it, it can cause vascular wilts and basically like within the stem is, is what I mean when I say that, you can sometimes see discoloration in the vascular tissue and even sometimes on the bottom of that stem, you can sometimes see like a discoloration of a brownish or sometimes like a reddish brownish color at that bottom. And you know, if you wanted to sacrifice the plant, if you're really having a feeling like, oh, this plant is looking sick, its roots look compromised, what have you, if you cut open that stem and you kind of see this hollow or a discoloration within your stem tissue, then that's a that's a good telltale sign. Yeah, I may I may have fusarium uh, within my plant. I'm assuming that you know if 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 the fusarium is in my soil on a day to day basis, and um, would it be fair to say that it is dormant, like we talked about the pythium? Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It has. So it'll it be dormant, and then we make it wet which which you know causes it to get active and then we keep it wet which means that it's starting to thrive in a um anaerobic environment and then the roots are rotting and creating opportunity for it to get inside of the plant um like 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 anywhere along this line this plant isn't coming back and so by the time we see the wilt uh i'm guessing we're in the same situation we were with the pythium where what did you say bag it and tag it and get it off the property yep yep <laughs> correct <laughs> oh that's so sad sometimes i mean it's like one thing if you're if you're scaled right and you've got 500 plants but for you know since i don't do a lot with scaled growers and i'm more focused on on smaller patient gardens like sometimes that can be, you know, one plant can be, you know, 20% of somebody's entire grow during the summer. And there's so much resistance to just throwing away the plant instead of trying to revive it. But so the longer that plant stays in your garden, the higher the the pathogenetic load to your garden, the more likely that those pathogens will hop over to another plant. Right. And I mean, there is, if you have less plants, hopefully you can try to optimize their root zone and their health, like as, as closely as you can to avoid uh, this, this occurring in the first place. And, you know, I know your listeners are really into uh, the microorganisms, the beneficials within the living soil. Like, you know, if if you have a really good um, microorganism buffer, I should say, within your soil, like hopefully that's another preventative defense uh, that's, you know, can can be good to have into place. And then you're right. It's, it really is like do not over, tr- please try not to over fertilize and over water because, uh, yeah, that can, you know, eventually be a death sentence to a plant. And, and, it, and it is very sad because there's no corrective uh, control measures. You know, it's all organic. And, and so it's all a preventative game and 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 i know we've been talking about that but that that really is you know cleaning and just making sure those conditions are really good for the plant to avoid it from coming in in the first place and taking over it's interesting to to think about the mechanics of that that death spiral in in specifics right because if your microorganisms and the other you know living 
folks in the rhizosphere are actually one of your defenses against Pythium and Fusarium. And first thing you do is you pour all of this water in there, and or maybe you maybe it's the right amount of water, but you have terrible drainage. Whatever reason, you've got really damp soil. So the first thing that's going to do is create an overly water environment that is going to wipe out a whole bunch of your microorganisms that are supposed to be part of your defenses. And then, uh, you know, you're creating this low oxygen environment that's going to rot your roots. And then, like, it, essentially, it just leaves the field of play open for a big old Pythium party. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. All right. So, um, so we understand the living conditions and that this is all a preventative game and that, you know, once we've gotten to the point that we actually see the wilt, like, don't even try, just like get, you know, bag it, tag it and get it off the property. So, so I want to take all of this and put it on its head before we, before we leave this uh, second set. And that is, um, you know, sometimes you got to try to save it. And and this is the example that I want to give you. It's kind of an impossibility, but but I, I want us to like kind of work it out anyway, because I know that there's people, including me, who grow this way. And let's imagine you've got a four foot by eight foot raised bed that, you know, let's just say it's like 18 or 22 inches deep. And you're going to put multiple plants in there. And the whole point is that you're going to be, you know, growing, you know, you're going to have living soil and companion plants, and you're going to have multiple cannabis plants in one bed so that you know all of their roots can talk to each other and they can share nutrition and information and it's just this big sexy regenerative success until one of the root zones gets fusarium or pythium and suddenly you see like let's say one of your six plants in this bed you come in in the morning and it is wilted and you know it's not water everybody else looks good but this one plant is totally screwed and um, you know, the idea to bag it and pitch it is great in theory, except for the fact that um, it's in this shared bed. Um, so let's say that, you know, as the cultivator, you really don't want to cull the entire bed because, you know, if you've done it right, you've got, you know, tons of rocks in the bottom and then silt and, and sand and you're like building your layers of substrate up and it's just this beautiful thing that took all this effort. But now you've got this, you know, essentially this like, like out of control pathogen that's in the root zone of one plant. If we needed to try to at least try to save the bed, what would your radical prescription be for trying to extricate that one plant and revive the the bed so that perhaps it doesn't spread to the rest of the bed? So this might be really unpopular what I'm about to say, so I apologize in advance to all the growers you don't want to gut the rest of the plants that were sharing the soil. <laughs> so it's really important, first off, to make sure that that diagnosis is a fusarium, right? You, you want to make sure that that you have fusarium in the bed in the first place before you make these really dramatic calls, but say it's like, oh, like I think it is, I don't want to risk it. What I would do is at first, of course, take the plant that was showing symptoms, uh, wilt or what have you, get it out of the bed, um, bag it, get it out of your operation. I would also... I would get rid of the rest of the plants in that bed too, because really you're just creating a happy habitat for that fusarium to now go to those those roots and and feed on those, and you know 
if you've had a plant already wilt in that same bed, you probably have pretty high populations of that fusarium already in that bed now. So you don't want to increase that population even more and make it even harder down the road to be growing in that uh, high raised bed or what have you. So I would get rid of all the plants. Say you got six plants in the bay, one went down, get rid of all of them. And then at least... Um, you may have like moderate populations of the fusarium because it hasn't had time to really, you know, feed on all six. And, and now you just have like a crazy amount of uh, fusarium uh, structures and, and infecting agents within that, that soil. Uh, so th there's two things that come to mind once you've gotten rid of all the plants and now you're just left with this bed with, again, like you said, all these layers. I've, I've really been, um, you know, adding to my soil and making it healthy. Uh, there, there's two things I'm going to say. And I, I'm not going to guarantee it'll work, but you could at least try try uh, and see if it could eliminate um, if you want to keep growing in this bed. So one I would say is that you could try to cook the soil. So so when I say try to like cook the soil, I'm saying try to create an environment where you're going to you're going to try to get a lot of temperature, get the temperatures really high within that bed so it can hopefully uh, kill those infecting propagals and those structures. So a way to do this is you can get um, some plastic some some clear plastic so the sun can penetrate through and you want to really seal it around in that bed like make sure there's no air pockets you really want to get that clear plastic on top of that soil layer um put a bunch of bricks around it what have you and and it, it really helps when it's a hot summer day as well because you know if you do it right you can get temperatures up to like 120 degrees fahrenheit uh that can really help penetrate and kill some of those um infecting problems within that bed so that's one and again just depending on how bad the populations are it may be effective uh, so it's something to try uh, and then another option uh, which I, I've heard other extension agents talk about this within uh, cannabis is you know crop rotation so I I know you really want to put cannabis back in that bay really badly you know that's where you grow your cannabis plants but but since you know that there's fusarium right now in it and it's compromised, but you don't want to gut the bed out, you don't want to waste all that good substrate, uh, you could try to plant another crop that season in that bed. Uh, so I've heard hairy vetch. Um, some people like see it as kind of like a weed, but it has a really pretty purple flower kind of pea-like uh, leaves. So it's called hairy vetch. And it, it's actually shown that if you use it as a, a crop, within fields where watermelon get fusarium it's shown to show suppression of fusarium within uh within that that field so so you could try something like that putting another crop uh that is either can help suppress the fusarium over time or that just isn't cannabis so you can really you're really just trying to decrease those populations now in that soil so that you can eventually put cannabis back in it and, and feel more confident that you're not going to have another uh, outbreak. Wow. The, um, that's actually a pretty like novel idea using a plant, kind of using it as a beneficial. I really was expecting you to talk more like when you, when you did that apology at the beginning, I really <laughs> thought you were going to go into um, uh, like antifungal drench or something like that, um, which isn't, what isn't, which isn't really how you went with it. Um, so I guess I will, um, are there any, um, you know, organic or Omri, Omni, Omni certified, um, 
fungicides that you think might solve this issue now granted this is this is like a nuclear option right because it's also probably going to take down your mycelium networks and everything else so like this is not what we want to do but people do all sorts of radical things uh when they've got an infest or you know an infected bed so so i figure it's worth asking yeah, so there's there's a few um, there's there's actually quite a bit of biological fungicides that are out there that you can I'm pretty sure you can now use within cannabis. Uh, but there's there's three that come to my mind that are more efficient towards fusarium. Uh, and, and they're all biological fungicides. So a good way to think of it is good microbes versus your bad microbes, which is your fusarium is the bad microbe. And the good microbes that I have in mind are pseudomonas, uh, species in biological, uh, fungicides. So you can just look, it'll say active ingredient when you read the label. And if it's a, if it's a pseudomonas strand and if it's labeled for fusarium, um, diseases, then that's, that's a good contender that you could use. Another one that's really popular that I've used because it's, it's really efficient within, uh, suppressing pythium is root shield. So that's a trichoderma, which is a beneficial uh, fungi that can mycoparasitize uh, other bad fungi or oomycetes. So it's really efficient in, in that that and bacillus so bacillus is a bacteria uh, so is pseudomonas the one that i said earlier those are both beneficial bacterias uh and and there's a lot of products such as triathlon ba is a biofungicide that comes to mind with bacillus in it and uh and companion now i think they just came out with a new formula like companion max so these would all be uh good formulations that you could use that are organic they're omri certified like you said um and you you could like try to try to put those in the bed but it just depends how high those fusarium populations are uh, to see how effective those biological fungicides will be on helping uh, colonize that fusarium that's in the bed and prey upon it. But yeah, like that's another another good solution that you could you could try out. And those are the three that come to my mind that are that have been pretty efficient towards fusarium right on and then and then after you use them as a nuclear option you're going to be left with a bed that's like out of balance and you're going to have to spend some time you know like rebuilding the biology which is why you know it it is considered a nuclear option where you're just trying to you know save maybe not save the living part of the soil but just not have to replace the soil and the silt and the you know sand and the rocks and and like start over with a clean slate like you're like maybe you can maybe you can save your inputs but you're going to have to rebuild the biology after you use something like that Right. And I don't think it's a bad thing. So I think we see it as, oh, if we add these products, they'll be so dominant. Like we'll just have like bacillus in the bed or we'll, we'll just have pseudomonas. But I think we need as researchers um, to really look into what will happen uh, when we just add these products to, cause I mean, we're talking about like outdoor uh, beds, even if they're indoor, it's like, you know, you got silt, you got rocks, you have, you have soil that you had there previously. Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure. Sure, if adding these biological products would totally dominate, you know, this microorganism community in there. If, if anything, you know, I would hypothesize that adding them may recruit other different organisms to make up in the bed and things like that. Like, I think we underestimate how complex these microorganism communities are uh, within all these different 
living situation. So I, I think that would be like a really interesting uh, thing to study. Like, you know, if I have a bed uh, that had high populations in Fusarium, if I added a biofungicide, how does that reduce the populations? And how does that change the microbial makeup of that bed? I, I think all these are very like unanswered questions that hopefully in the next, you know, five, 10 years with all these researchers now getting grants to study cannabis, like something that we'll have more answers for. Cause that's, that's something I just, I just don't know. Here, here. I love that answer. I love that. I was doom. I was dooming about the whole thing. And you're like, <laughs> Oh, you know, let's trust the microbes, which is usually my answer for things. So I love that. So, all right, cool. Well, we're going to take another short break and be right back. You are listening to shaping fire. And my guest today is plant pathologist Cora McGee. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Hembra Genetics Collection to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. That's Hembra, spelled H-E-M-B-R-A. Hembra is not just another seed bank. Hembra is a woman-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 50 breeders and over 500 strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Hembra Genetics has something for everyone with over 350 feminized strains, 200 regular varieties, and over 100 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust, like Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, Canarado, In-House Genetics, Fast Buds, and Gnome Automatics. We both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money, but have no customer service. I invited Hembra to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it, and you'll usually receive your seeds in just a few days. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you this fast. But Hembra cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. So save a few bucks by using this discount code too. Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout to save 10% off your order. Buy seeds from good folks who will get you great seeds reliably every time. Visit HembraGenetics.com today. That's Hembra Genetics. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. 
you can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynamico on Amazon or dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. Cannabis folks are innovators and problem solvers, and we like to make money. Have you developed a tool, technique, or plant that you want to protect and monetize? You'll likely want legal representation that is experienced, accessible, and shares your values. Plant and Planet Law represents a wide variety of clients who choose to respect the environment while pursuing their business goals. Have you invented a machine or gizmo that you're bringing to market? Did you discover a breakthrough environmentally friendly pesticide or fertilizer formulation that you're about to start selling? Have you bred a cannabis plant with attributes not found anywhere else? Attorney Dale Hunt and his Plant and Planet team have established genetic patents in over 30 countries. Working to help entrepreneur scientists throughout the life sciences, Plant and Planet represents environmentally positive clients in cannabis and other botanicals, fungi, water purification, clean energy, emulsions, and medical applications. Plant and Planet helps people protect what they've created. If you are an early-stage company with an established idea and are in the process of fundraising, often the investors require intellectual property protections happen at the same time. Plant and Planet can be your sole representation, or they can integrate with your existing legal team and plug in their specialties. Plant and Planet is made of scientists, lawyers with a real passion for cannabis, inventions, and the environment. They have the scientific and legal depth to help you establish patent protections for your great idea. You don't have to go it alone. Friendly, qualified, and honorable legal representation is available to you. Contact Plant and Planet Law today to start the conversation. Email info at plantandplanet.com. That's Plant and Planet Law. Our clients make the planet better. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is plant pathologist, Cora McGee. All right. So, Cora, we have already talked a lot about prevention, uh, which is essentially don't let your soil be too wet because all hell breaks loose when uh, <laughs> the soil is too wet. Um, but a couple times you have mentioned um, not, not causing the um, uh, pythium and fusarium to spread by you know, keeping things clean, right? And um, while, how do I want to say this? While lip service is given to, oh, you know, wiping down your scissors or whatever in, you know, the cannabis cultivation scene, um, I got to admit to myself, I don't even know if I'm cleaning my tools right. I mean, I just clean my tools the way that my mentor taught me to clean my tools, but I didn't learn that anywhere. So let's start with that. Um, what, what tools should we be keeping clean and how do we clean those tools properly? 
right? So, so pruners and shears and things like that, uh, things that you use to prune or, or take cuttings, those definitely need to be sanitized. And you can sanitize those by, if you have isopropyl alcohol, uh, some people spray down their tools and wipe them. Uh, I'm, saying, I'm not saying anything's wrong with that, but personally, I would fully submerge the tools in the isopropyl alcohol uh, just to make sure you're getting, um, you know, it's covering all the surface area and whatnot, and you're not missing anything when you just spray. Uh, I, I think that would be one thing I would say. And then it, you can also use a solution of 10% bleach to also clean your tools, which is pretty effective. Uh, however, I would give a contact time to sit in that 10% bleach before you use them for all your plants for, you know, about five to 10 minutes uh, to really make sure that it's getting uh, any, any infecting uh, propicals that may be on those tools uh, really, you know, give you security that, that they should be clean. When you say the contact time, do you mean that the bleach solution should be like, it should be soaking in the bleach solution for 10 minutes? Or are you saying that don't put it on your plants for 10 minutes after you do it? That's a good, that's a good question to clear it up. So I'm saying you want to, you want to let your tool sit in the 10% bleach solution for about five to 10 minutes, and then you can just wipe them off and use them. But you just, you do want to make sure that within the, the 10% bleach solution that, uh, the contact time is, is enough to where the cleaning solution is actually doing its job for the tools. Is the, um, does that 10, does that 10 minutes also work for using the isopropyl or ethanol solution? So it's interesting. So uh, speaking from, I know not a growing side, but in the laboratory, when I'm doing anything like very sterile, or if I'm putting isolates into long-term storage, you know, I do let my scalpels and my, my metal tools sit in uh, alcohol for, for at least 10 minutes just to be safe. And then I'll flame them. Uh, however, I understand that uh, I haven't seen this a lot within growing operations. I know definitely the contact time for the 10% bleach is very important, but it's really up to you. Um, again, my preference, I would say I'd want to fully at least submerge them, uh, but I don't, I don't think that it's necessary for that, that 10 minute contact time with the isopropyl uh, alcohol. So let's get really specific because, you know, I am usually using either um, isopropyl alcohol or ethanol because as a cannabis enthusiast, these are things I have a lot of in my life around. Um, uh, and normally I would have a washcloth that has got some isopropyl or ethanol on it, and I will simply wipe the scissors on the four blade sides and just call it good. I am thinking at this point that that's not enough contact time. Well, it's not just that, but you're not truly like, so if you're just kind of wiping the blades of the scissors, like that, the scissors may have other parts of it that haven't gotten uh, exposed to the alcohol that now you're clipping and, you know, it could be a source of contamination. Um, so just to totally eliminate that, uh, you know, in my opinion, I, I think spraying can be effective, but, you know, also submerging the tools and the alcohol can also be effective just to make sure that you're covering all parts of the tools. Um, so, so I'm trying to think of the best practice for this because, um, you know, putting all of my tools into a bath at the end of the day and walking away and even leaving them overnight, like that sounds like easy squeezy. But 
I'm also using those scissors on multiple plants during the day, and I'm pretty sure you're going to tell me that there should be some amount of cleaning before I go plant to plant because that's how I spread infection, right? You should, yeah. I mean, uh, if you, especially if you've been having issues with disease in the past, and you just like want to be very sure. I know within uh, the apple and pear industry, they, I mean, they, they plant to plant. I mean, five minutes soaking between plant to plant. Like it, it's pretty serious within that industry. So yeah, you could also uh, take a page out of uh, what other crop producers um, or other yeah, pretty much other crop producers do and other growers do uh, by, you know, you could have multiple shears in a jar of ethanol and, you know, kind of rotate them out as you go plant to plant so you're not waiting forever. Uh, or, or, you know... I, I like that. That's a, that's a pretty yeah. good best practice because, like, one thing that we cannabis growers have are lots of freaking scissors, right? Like, because we go through them and, and, you know, we're all trimming at the end of the season and so I probably got 17 pair. You know, the, the hardest part would just be finding them all at the same time but but i like the idea of if i'm go- if i'm going down the row and trimming all of the plants of everything that's necrotic or unnecessary or big leafing or whatever to to have like you know six or seven pairs in a bath and just work my way down the line and use a pair of scissors and put them in the back and then grab the next pair for the next plant and by the time i get to the first pair again they will well have been have the contact time that they need yeah yeah and and, um and you know better to be safe than sorry too so it might seem like overkill but you know if you're not getting disease then at least you know it's a good pat on the back where it's like oh well this might seem really excessive but uh i really don't want to get disease because then once i have it there's no way to control it yeah i would say that that's a no-brainer yes to anybody who is scaled for sure because you've got a lot of room for loss but then also anybody who's not scaled because like the example earlier, if you've only got five plants, one of the benefits is that you can go slow and you can scout every day and, you know, you can, you know, do, do soaks like this because every plant is precious. So whether every plant is precious or you've got a lot to lose from sheer numbers, it really does sound like a best practice for anybody who's actually just a conscientious grower. Right. And I would also say, you know, it doesn't just stop with uh, pruners and shears. You could also, if you're reusing a bunch of pots, like even spraying down those pots and getting all the loose soil out and just really starting clean with um, with with everything that you're using within the production uh, is also a pretty good idea as well. So do you mean like spray down the pots with like isopropyl? Yeah, you could do that. 10% bleach. Uh, yeah, let them, but make sure you let them dry before, you know, you put soil in. Sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, like just another way, uh, you know, I'm sure you, you reuse like seedling trays or I'm sure that's true. Y'all don't do stuff from seedling, but you know, where you put your cuttings or just any type of plastics is a good way to put it, uh, pots and things like that, that you keep reusing. Yeah. That also, it does not hurt to, uh, to get, you know, empty them out, kind of, kind of brush them out, get all that, uh, like any, like, you know, roots that may have been in there, get them out of there, any like old soil. Uh, you could even do a dip within the 10% bleach, let them dry somewhere. And then once they're dry, they're ready to go. And you've got clean plot pots that you can reuse. Uh, it's a good, a good, um, sanitation procedure. Right on. So, um, so, 
I'd like you to speak briefly to the other cross-contamination that you've just kind of alluded to a couple times. And so I'm going to give you just a couple data points and then just kind of let you run with it. One is that, um, um, you know, you mentioned how the you can get an infection from pot to pot. And so I would like to know what the mechanism for that is. And then you mentioned, you know, stuff getting on your shoes and the floor. And so it, it sounds like we need to be careful with pot to pot prevention. And then also, you know, litter, maybe, maybe we're even using a 10% bleach solution on the floor. So, so kind of speak to that if you would. Yes. Yeah, so so it's it, it's easier so say you're growing kind of more in an indoor facility it can be a little easier to sanitize uh surfaces as you will with um you know 10 percent bleach or you know i don't know how big the operation a lot of commercial growers will use xeritol or sanidate some of these oxidizers that can really cyst open and, and kill infecting propagals um really efficient on surfaces uh so so that's one and you don't want like excessive splashing going on everywhere uh and yeah if you have debris on your floor again like you really want to get rid of all that plant debris that soil debris root debris that that may fall out from plants that you've harvested and you're trying to get rid of because uh, yeah those you know we talked about earlier how these pathogens can survive and you know decaying tissue and soil uh, and just kind of stay dormant so so it it's easy to spread that around when it's just kind of sitting on the floor or sitting on your bench and it's not, and it's just sitting there and, and not getting swept up, taken care of, putting in the trash. And uh, even after you sweep up, it's a good practice to, you know, even sanitize those floors, sanitize those benches. Uh, if you have a canopy, you know, like cleaning that canopy um, off every now and then uh, can can really help. Again, like your your whole goal is to lower the contamination, is to lower these pathogen populations within your growing operation. What did what did so, you specifically mean by splashing? That's kind of that word seems kind of out of context. So splashing, there's multiple ways you can splash. So a lot of people. Uh, within cannabis industry that I've, I've personally seen, I don't know if it's for everyone, uh, does a lot of hand irrigation. Yeah, we so do a lot a of it. Yeah. Yep, yep, you do a lot. Of, and so within other crop um, production at a higher scale, it's a lot of drip irrigation to avoid the splashing that I'm talking about. Because uh, say, <clears throat> say I have a bunch of debris or I've got debris somewhere and now, you know, I'm, I'm splashing everywhere and the water's getting on the floor and it's, you know, you don't want anything to splash into your, uh, your healthy, like, you know, uncontaminated soil, um, from a potential contamination source. So that's one. And also, you know, with boots, like you can get things on your boots and then you're walking around in the water and then, you know, say you've got multiple stages. One thing that I really want to stress is you don't want to go trudging around and, uh, say you've got a section where you have more mature plants older plants uh and there's a lot of soil and you know you're working within that um you know you're irrigating your boots are all muddy what have you and then you go into your cutting or you know younger tissue seedling bay you really want to make sure that that stays really clean because those young uh cannabis plants are a lot more susceptible to these diseases so like even at you know a lower population they could they could be compromised and, and get an infection so you you want to be careful of how you're even contaminating um 
you know, bay to bay or, uh, or you know, um, garden to garden, you know, bringing any soil and, and really bringing contaminants with you in different sections uh, wherever you're growing as well. Uh, so it, it's something to really keep in mind. Uh, and even like cleaning your boots off, you know, that's a, you get into the habit of it, spraying them down after each day. And, and uh, yeah. I am so guilty of that splashing from hand watering. I had not even ever considered that because I am one of those people that hand waters from a hose with a water wand on the end. And I just go plant to plant. And, you know, so long as the soil isn't hydrophobic, it will almost immediately soak into the soil. But there is a moment there that it does kind of collect on the top and and I'm doing, you know, using the rain setting. And so there's all these micro splashes and it's probably aerosolizing all sorts of stuff from the top of the pot that is, you know, very likely going to be spread to the nearby plants. Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, that's me. <laughs> so, all right. Um, all right. So, uh, sorry. So, so before we move on from like cleaning stuff, is there, is there anything that I have missed that, that, uh, I should ask? Um, I think we've covered a lot of it. Uh, you always want to inspect your new plant material. Like I said, you know, the, the youngest plant material is super susceptible to these diseases. Um, and I know you, you know, if you take cuttings from mother plants, you always want to inspect that mother plant. I know within commercial facilities, they don't, they don't want to keep a mother plant for more than two months. Uh, they always want to be starting with, uh, really clean plants because, you know, it really starts in the beginning. You want to start with healthy plants and end with healthy plants. And, um, and yeah, just make sure you get all that debris off the ground. You're not, you know, bringing contaminants from one field to another field. Um, and, uh, you're properly sanitizing your tools and, uh, all the equipment that you're using to grow again, just as another safety net as that prevention umbrella we've been talking about. Uh, so so to really help your your grow right on. to be the most successful you can. <laughs> right? That's, we're all on the same team. We all just want the plants to be uh, as happy and as as uh, healthy as they can be. So just putting these things into place, it it seems like a pain, but it always pays off when you don't have disease issues. Uh, so it's all good practices to keep in mind. Right on. Now, see, that is such a great summary. Right now would be a great time for me to like wrap up the show and thank you and everything. But there's one more question that I... I want to ask you, um, when you and I were first on the phone and talking about whether or not we thought this was going to be uh, an episode we wanted to do together, you said something in passing that totally, you know, got my attention and and I wanted to ask you about it. And, it, and you were talking about your research there at University of Connecticut and you were all excited because you said that you had just killed a whole greenhouse of cannabis for research and you were all excited about it and so like would you tell us the story like why why did you kill an entire greenhouse of cannabis and why were you thrilled about it that's a total like if there's like any plant pathologist listening they're like uh yeah it's like we only feel that way it's like when we see sick plants we like get really excited <laughs> so so i want to give a little context so at uconn i i predominantly study uh, root pathogens within leafy greens or vegetable crops. That's that's what I focus on. However, since the doors have really opened for cannabis and not a lot of people have been working on it, 
we had gone to a commercial facility in 2019 and they had symptomatic plants with the same symptoms that we've just covered in this show, reduced growth, yellow tissue. They even had one plant that fully wilted that they bagged and was like trying to get it out of there. Um, and at UConn, at any research facility, we can't take the tissue. So I wasn't allowed to actually take the roots and take uh, any of the infecting tissue. So I took as Because these are cannabis I, plants, to be clear. These are not leafy right. greens. You got right. to go to yes. a commercial yes. cannabis facility. Yes, right. yes, yes. So, right. Thank you for clearing that up. So, so we had gone to a cannabis facility because they're, you know, having some issues. We're just checking it out. And we ended up taking the... They were growing mature cannabis plants in coconut core. Uh, so we had taken the coconut core surrounding the roots of all the symptomatic plants, brought them back to the lab. Well, um, we had actually ended up getting 26 uh, organisms. Uh, wow, that sounds like a lot. That- it was, yeah, it was a lot. We did serial dilution plating. Some people can get like more, but we had collected from a good bit of plants. So within that, uh, fast forward, so we had identified them morphologically and molecularly. We got 21 of those isolates were Pythium muriotylum, the one that I spoke about earlier that's very sev- that causes very severe uh, symptoms within cannabis, and we've seen that. And then three were this Globosporangium irregular that was formerly the Pythium irregular. <laughs> and then one was a Fusarium oxysporum that we actually got from uh, a cutting uh, in rock wool. So, so fast forward, we've got these isolates. And as a plant pathologist, in order to actually publish and be confident about our findings that these organisms were the ones that were causing the symptoms within these plants, it, we have to do what's called Koch's postulates. So we have to isolate those organisms and then we have to reinfect the same crop with those isolates uh, separately so we can see the effect of each one of these isolates uh, on the cannabis plants to see uh, if they cause disease and they caused a lot of disease and I mean I've been working with root pathogens for about six years now and I I really haven't seen this type of virulence or severity (laughs) within um within seedlings uh as much as i have with cannabis uh when i had introduced these pythiums that i had gotten from the facility so uh just to kind of wrap it up we had a whole greenhouse with a thousand cannabis plants and they were uh i had inoculated them at two weeks old after i'd grown them from seed so so they were pretty young and and they were growing pretty well and then we'd inoculate them uh how tall were they i want to say i want to say they grew to about a foot so these are about foot uh kind of young cannabis plants and we got about a thousand of them and all of the 21 pythium muriotylum isolates that we had gotten from that facility that we introduced back on to healthy uh we couldn't do marijuana plants so it was hemp plants i all of them went down i mean chlorosis they all wilted uh only you know uh, some as soon as a couple days after that pythium was introduced to them uh so it really showed wow yes these these pythiums that we got from the facility um are very pathogenic pathogenic uh to cannabis and and caused high virulence or high severity 
when we put them back on the plant. So then as, you know, as scientists, it's like, okay, so now, now we're going to report it. So, you right. know, you can't just take a disease from a plant and be like, okay, it causes disease. You know, you have to, like I said, uh, make it happen. To, yeah. Yes. You have to prove you have to like, I didn't just randomly get this organism. You have to prove that it can actually cause uh, symptoms and infection on the plant that you got it from. So, yeah, it, uh, I guess it was very ex exciting because, like I said, I, I cannabis is very susceptible to pythium, and that just kind of opened our eyes to like, wow, like research really, you know, it's exciting because I'm sure there's going to be a lot more research projects and opportunities coming up to help these growers and help everyone uh, really not only identify but help control and the things we we're talking about and understanding more about it because it seems uh you know i always i work with poinsettias a lot too within our lab we do some with ornamental growers and poinsettia is like really susceptible to pythium as well it's you know if you talk to any growers who grow poinsettias it's, it's a big pathogen they look out for and i'm like who like cannabis is the next poinsettia when it comes to pythium because oh, uh because pythium's pretty severe on it so um right on so, yeah. well i appre i appreciate you sharing that story and you know uh you know props to university of connecticut for doing whatever legal like hoops they had to jump through in order to be able to do you know uh, cannabis research whether it's hemp or type one is is you know doesn't matter because it's the same plant it's just nice to know that we've got university ag departments working on our side now and that and that people like you are doing that kind of work and killing thousands of plants so that we can all the rest of us, learn best practice so so shout out to university of connecticut for that and and i so i guess in 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 wrapping up thank you also to you cora for for joining me here on shaping fire and sharing your experience you know you've um since you work with us on a daily basis in a university setting and you know you're getting ready to defend your own phd um it's really nice to have somebody who has got such specific examples and easily accessed metaphors and knowledge where you can go right to the point instead of dancing around it. So thank you so much for coming on the show and, uh, and sharing your expertise. Thank you for having me. It's been very fun. And you've been also sh awesome, Shango. And just, it's, it's been a pleasure. Excellent. Truly. So if you want to learn more about uh, different molds and how they involve with the cannabis plant, I recommend that you go back and check out episode 28 of Shaping Fire, which is all about botrytis and powdery mildew in scientific detail with uh, Kevin McKiernan. And uh, that is a, a bit more of a genetic approach than this. This show was which was more about uh usability and best practices but uh oh my goodness you will know a lot more about botrytis and powdery mildew after that show uh from a genetic level and best practices to uh to try to control it and um and if you have enjoyed uh cora and you want to keep up with her and her exploits in the lab um you can follow cora uh on her instagram and that is cora mcgee with an unusual spelling so i'm going to give it to you that's uh, cora McGee, C O R A M C G E H E E. So that's Cora McGee on Instagram. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. 
On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shangolos on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.